Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Today's episode is a bonus episode, which means it's a bit different to our normal episodes as it focuses on topics besides venture capital and the fundraise that could be helpful to founders. Our guest today is Brian Wang, founder of Dashing Leadership. Brian is an executive coach and helps early stage founders grow into more effective leaders. Previously, he started Ram Photocracy, one of the largest fitness social networks of its time, and sold it in 2015. Afterwards, he joined 500 startups as a venture partner and later led major product initiatives at, at Credit Karma and Ease. On this episode, we discuss coaching founders, examples of why a founder might need a coach, the differences between coaches, mentors, and advisors, and curiosity versus judgment. I really appreciate this conversation, and I hope you'll find this all helpful as well. So without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So let's start at the very beginning of your career. What attracted you to, to technology, entrepreneurship, and eventually found, founding Fitocracy? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. You know, it's funny that we're having this conversation today of all days because, you know, we're in the middle of this market panic. And, uh, you know, it seems like the sky is falling and people are making comparisons to 2008 and 2009. And that's relevant because that was around the time when I started photography. So to, to kind of go all the way back there, you know, I, I graduated from college in 2008 and, um, you know, Lehman Brothers and the collapse uh, really started to kick in um, in that fall of 2008. And that was when I had first started um, working, uh, you know, post-college, I was in New York. And it was a weird time because everyone was starting to freak out. Um, I was starting to get my feet wet in terms of working a professional job. I was working at a management consulting firm. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't really know, to be honest, what I was there for. I, I didn't know how I fit in. Um, I wasn't receiving a lot of uh, guidance and mentorship. Uh, I didn't know how to make myself useful. And the funny thing is nine months later, after I started that job, I got fired. And so uh, if you picture this, I got fired in the spring of 2009 in the middle of you know, the financial crisis in New York with an expensive uh, uh, apartment and having no real discernible skills and I remember thinking that I just didn't know what I was going to do. Who was going to hire me in this environment? Somebody who got fired in their first year of a job um, with not much value to add. And um, I remember uh, in that moment, I started to think, well, maybe I should start a company. Because the, the idea had already been in the back of my mind, like being an entrepreneur, there was a certain attraction to that. But you know, the risk-averse part of me said, no, you should wait. You should, you should build some assets. You should build some skills and a network. Um, but I remember in 2009, I thought about it. You know, ultimately, I decided, let's reset a little bit, find another job, um, get my bearings. So I remember getting another job in, in that fall or maybe going into the summer of 2009 up in Connecticut. And for me, that was all about 
regaining some stability, especially in this time out of school where I was just starting to figure things out. And then by the time we hit, let's say 2010, things in the market started to get a little bit better. I was starting to feel a little bit more confident and capable in my role, but I started to get really bored. You know, I was working this, this job that didn't require a lot of intellectual capacity, to be totally honest. I wasn't getting a lot of energy out of that work. So my, my mind started to wander again and entrepreneurship started to creep back in. Around the same time, I was starting to spend much of my days really kind of fantasizing about what kind of business would I start if I did with uh, my you know, best friend from college. And we, he and I were, were spending all, all of our work days talking about this idea and that. And, um, and ultimately, uh, I think I started off by saying, hey, would you consider quitting your job to start a company with me? like sometime soon, not next week, but you know, like if we set a timeline, how would you feel about that? And at the time it seemed like a crazy thing to do, but I was 24. I didn't have any debt. I uh, didn't have any real obligations. So I figured, you know, we should at least start exploring this. And um, long story short, what ultimately got us to, to, to pull the trigger and, and start photography was I think a combination of a few factors. And you know, it's funny because I'm totally going to frame this in the way that a classic VC would in terms of what's an investable company, quote unquote. And so, you know, it was like we saw a market opportunity. We saw that existing fitness products and software just had a lot of room for improvement. There was a gap there. Health and fitness was a personal passion of uh, both my mine and, and my partners. And so uh, we had a lot of uh, familiarity and what we would like to think as expertise in that space. So there was kind of the, the team checkbox, right? For for a pitch deck would be, you know, is there a market? Um, does a team know what they're doing? Are they capable? And you know, we we had the 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 ability to build this. We 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 knew enough to build some basic prototypes, and we had the risk appetite. And and so you had uh, a market. A market. You had a thesis for the product. That was the other thing. Uh, what we had come up with was something that really didn't exist yet. It was, um, how do we turn um, fitness into uh, a role-playing game? You know, people would call it gamification. It was not the term that we used, but the idea just seemed completely intuitive and yet didn't exist yet. So, you know, the, the, the idea behind the product seemed to really get us excited. And so we decided to go and quit our jobs and go after it. And so it was really the combination of those three. We, we, we saw this market. We really loved this market for fitness. Product idea itself uh, was really exciting. Um, and you had a team of uh, you know two good friends who uh, felt like they could work together quite well. What's interesting about it is it seems like you're going to be entrepreneurial no matter what. And it's interesting because talking with some VCs on the, on the, on the show, they say, uh, you know, we want founders who the last resort is that they want to find a com found a company, whereas you are kind of instinctively always wanted to be or at least try entrepreneurship. For entrepreneurs that are out there that want to be an entrepreneur, like first, if that makes sense, um, is there a right or wrong way to look at entrepreneurship? You know, when you refer to this idea of a last resort, I I hadn't heard it described like that, but I think I can understand what you mean by that. It was like. You have to work on this. Like they're like it's it's keeping you up at night. You know, it's like this is like this is where I have to put my attention and my energy. Certainly follow the the logic there. And when it's reversed, when it's like the 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 initial 
attraction is to be an entrepreneur, there is danger there. I think that conjures up the idea of a wantrepreneur, right? It's like the type of person who is really in love with the trappings of being an entrepreneur and a founder, but they don't necessarily have this kind of inherent vision or drive towards a specific company. Because um, at the end of the day, founders live and die off of something they want to bring into the world, something specific, not just the, uh, the status or identity of being a founder. And so to the extent that there is a wrong way of thinking about it, I think that if you are overly focused on the image or the identity or what it would be like, then you may be setting yourself up for failure because you're probably underappreciating all of the challenges that come along with that life. And you're probably also going to be less likely to have you know, strong conviction in what are the, whatever it is that you are building. So you might end up thrashing around a lot because you're going from idea to idea. And so I think it's all a balance. Um, there's something to be said about somebody who inherently loves working for themselves to create new things, um, to put them out into the world and to serve customers. I think there is a type of entrepreneur like that. Um, but in that case, I think they're they're motivated by the right things. They're motivated by service. They're motivated by creating something new, just creation for creation's sake, as opposed to being, you know, the entrepreneur and sitting in that seat. If that makes sense. That makes um, a lot of sense, and I think that sometimes entrepreneurship can be romanticized. Walk me through a bit of your journey with with uh, photography and like some of the learnings that you learned along the way. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is the importance of sequencing. And so by that, I mean, when we're in startup land, we're often taught that you, if you're going to build a venture scale business, well, it ought to be something that could be worth over a billion dollars, right? And, and that conjures up these images of something that's dominating the market and has brought some fundamental innovation to the space and you have millions of customers and so on. And you start to visualize that. And I think that the mistake that I made was trying to skip to that really quickly um, and thinking that um, I could take a strategy to get there uh, as soon as possible, rather than appreciating the value of knowing where we were in the journey. So exercising some sense of self-awareness um, and then being able to stage it from you know step one, step two, step three. And that's what I mean by sequencing, right? So if we were to have a world where we were serving tens of millions of customers and, and um, you know, offering products and services to meet their needs around health and fitness, um, you can't get there from your first product. In fact, that might require five products. It might require five different markets that you're serving. And I remember, you know, back in 2011, we had some semblance of product market fit with our initial product. Like we were serving a, a niche community of, you know, typically young males who were already fitness enthusiasts. They understood the lingo, they understood the lifestyle and the culture, they were working out regularly. And what got them excited about photography was that it kind of added this extra layer to their existing experience that uh, really enhanced it for them. And as a result, you saw some strong adoption, strong engagement in a community really start to form. And I remember in 2012, after we had raised our first million in capital, <laughs> I remember we had this team offsite and uh, we spent a fair amount of that time really 
going through the exercise that many companies do, which is to define our vision and our strategy and, and our mission. What are we here for? And we started to get into this kind of mindset that we were going to solve the obesity crisis in the United States. You know, we, were, you know, we, we knew all the stats, right? Two thirds of America are either overweight or obese. Oh my God, humongous problem. Let's solve that problem. That seems like the problem worth solving. All of a sudden, the problems that you know, the average gym rat uh, was experiencing seemed minuscule by comparison. And so our focus shifted, right? Our focus was now to start to evolve the product into something that would appeal to more of the mainstream, whatever the mainstream means, right? That, that's the problem. Mainstream is a very vague term. Uh, in practice, that meant, hey, let's make this less intimidating. Let's uh, make this product easier to use for somebody who doesn't already have a uh, habit of working out and so on. And, you know, the, the problem with a strategy was now we're trying to effectively pivot, even though we didn't call it that, we didn't even conceptualize this as a pivot. We just thought it was a natural evolution, but we were rushing ourselves, right? We hadn't really solidified our position with the um, initial cohort of customers and really established dominance there quite yet. So rather than press our advantage there, we decided, oh, let's go after the bigger fish, quote unquote. And so we ended up in no man's land because we, we, we weren't able to sufficiently solve the problems and the pain points that the, the quote-unquote mainstream were experiencing. And we were drifting farther and farther away from that initial cohort that uh, was really excited about what we were building with photography. So um, I think the other thing I'll add is that when you raise money from, from VCs, there's a natural pressure to think bigger, to like, how can this become a hundred million, a billion, et cetera. And so, if I were to do it over again, I would have I would have said, look, this is a matter of sequencing. The 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 product in its current iteration may not seem like it's going to uh, be worth a billion dollars. It may not seem like it can reach tens of millions because what you're seeing is the first phase, maybe even just the first product. But what we're going to be able to gain by creating dominance in that market is resources, it's influence, it's brand, it's um, a resilient business that we can then use to launch into the next adjacent market and then, and then so on and so forth. And so I think that there's so much value in this idea of sequencing, but it requires you to be very clear on where are you today? And if, if where you are is still finding your, your, your feet with a current market, don't jump to the next thing, just appreciate where you are and understand that there's there has to be a bridge between your present reality and where this business ends up being in five, seven years and respecting that those two things are different right now. So I think that's a big one for me. I spoke with um, Mike Dubow at Greylock and he was the first growth hire at Tilt, uh, Tilt and then Stitch Fix. What, ha what was interesting about Tilt is it was kind of a similar problem that you were facing, except instead of of trying to address, right, um, really uh, being very broad in terms of your market, right, in terms of uh, your problem. They built three different products to address three different kind of uh, areas. And eventually, and, and it was that lack of focus that, so it's kind of, this was kind of interesting how it's a similar pro problem. It turns out it's really hard to find gold and, and really hard to know if it's like actually going to last. And so there's a lot of, I think, 
ADHD in startups because you're just frantically trying to find the thing that's going to stick. Right. Talk me a little bit through about your career. How'd you end up in coaching and why you thought that coaching was the right kind of skill set that fit you? You know, I spent a little bit of time talking about how I got into entrepreneurship and startups and, you know, photography ended up being this five-year journey and we did a lot of good with it, right? And we, we, we built a product that uh, many people loved, many people used. It, it had a meaningful uh, impact on their lives. <clears throat> um, but unfortunately, that business ended up not working out financially. But what was important about it was that I think it created uh, a sense of connection and support for people who really needed those things when they were trying to take control over their physical health. Um, and you know, as it turns out, a lot of the things that we do in health and fitness are not just physical, but very much mental and emotional. And I, I bring that up because I think that ended up being uh, or pointing to an important theme for me, uh, the importance of connection, the importance of support. And so after photocracy came to an end, you know, I, I then kind of spent a few years figuring out where do I fit into this ecosystem? You know, there was, there were, whenever a company ends, there's a lot of things get thrown into question. You're really not sure of, you know, what you're good at and, um, you know, how you should be spending your time. And there are a lot of these um, uncertainties. But what I did know is that I wanted to stay with startups. There was something really important about being either with the, the creators and leaders or being, you know, involved with them in some fashion. And so that naturally led me into VC. You know, VC, I think, for all of the criticism that gets lobbed at it, I think serves a very important function for the ecosystem. Finance is obviously really, really critical for making ideas come to life. And so, you know, I really cherished that year that I spent with 500 startups because it allowed me to, you know, serve founders uh, in, in a way that I hadn't been doing before. And um, I had a lot of empathy for the people who were building their companies and I just spent five years doing that. And so it, it felt very personal for me to, to be in a position to, to fund and support companies. And then, you know, I, I left that to go into product management because there was a part of me that really missed being in the trenches and shipping product, uh, serving customers and making their lives better in a number of different ways. Now, what led me into coaching, I think the line between you know VC and product management, founder or entrepreneurship, it's not obvious between that and coaching, but I, I found myself going into coaching because I had arrived at a point where I was asking myself, what do I want to spend my next 10 years on? Like, how, do, how am I going to uniquely contribute to the people around me and the people that I care about? And that started to trigger a number of different questions. Like, who do I care to work with? You know, what is it that they need? You know, what is, what is the, the major pain point that they're experiencing? Um, how can I uniquely contribute? You know, I think that when, when it came to who do I want to work with? Well, early stage founders and leaders are um, a special breed one that I understand quite well, having been one, and one type of person that I connect with quite well. And, and so the next question is around what do they need and how can I contribute? You know, founders make decisions every single day, um, and many of them end up becoming quite consequential for their companies. And the way someone ends up making decisions is influenced by so many things, their state of mind, their emotions, how much sleep they got, how much exercise are they, uh, are they having? What is their mental model? What is their a fundamental worldview at the time, you know, and all these things that relate to one another. And it's really, really easy to um, get stuck 
And I think the founders, I think any founder that you talk to will find themselves feeling stuck in one way or another, uh, at least once in their, in their careers, but probably multiple times, maybe even multiple times a week, <laughs> depending on who you talk to. And it can be really hard when you're finding yourself in that situation because so much of a company's success and momentum depends on the decision-making of a founder and the energy that they're kind of injecting into that company. And you start to ask yourself, well, how can you help people become unstuck? How can you free them so that uh, they are making decisions consciously? They're not doing that in a reactive way or in a fearful way, but instead they're doing that in a um, in an energetic, joyous way, in a in a confident way. And you know, fear drives a lot of behavior, but is not sustainable in the long term. So I understood that this was a problem that many many founders face this this fear of constantly just are we going to make it? Uh, are we making the right decision? Um, and, and this has knock-on effects, right, in terms of the cultures that they build um, and the way that they spend their time, you know, day in and day out. So that stuckness was something that was really top of mind for me. And, you know, this was a problem that I thought maybe something I can do about. And then this third component around, you know, what can I really uniquely contribute or how can I contribute, I should say. And, you know, there were a few factors that went into this, but first and foremost, um, having been in the seat, having been a CEO for five years and, and having been in these other positions as well, I think really gave me a unique set of perspectives that many people uh, don't have. Um, and so uh, it allows me to have different angles, different ways of viewing situations that are fundamentally an asset to other founders. But I think more importantly, when I kind of looked at myself and, and asked, what is it that I'm truly strong at something that I can, I really, really stands out about me. Um, and this was also based off of feedback from others that I, that I spoke to. Um, I think they, they would describe me as somebody who had a unique uh, presence as a listener, um, someone with unusually high emotional intelligence, someone else's words, not my, not my own, and, and with that empathy. And so I think if you combine that presence, that empathy and that listening and understanding with the past experiences of what it takes to be a leader and a CEO and to deal with all the challenges that come along with the role, that kind of became this potent combination. And it's funny because I didn't really know what to do with that once I started to connect those dots until um, I started to learn that, oh, coaching, coaching is a thing. It is, it is in fact a practice and a discipline that can be a huge asset for, uh, for leaders. And um, I, I had worked with an executive coach for a year when I was running photography, and it was one of the most impactful investments I'd ever made. It, it, it increased my um, uh, skills in terms of uh, the interpersonal um, uh, communication and stress management and decision-making and just making meaning out of everything that I was doing. So I, so I understood how valuable that um, having that support could be. Uh, as I kind of revisited that and started to learn more about what coaching itself was, it became very clear to me that this was what I ought to pursue. And so I started that in kind of late 2018 and started doing that uh, while I was still a product manager going into 2019 and then went full time into that um, by the middle of the year uh, after it became clear that uh, I was finding a lot more joy in that work. It, I was much more naturally suited for it and was was much more effective at it than being a product manager, frankly. Um, and, uh, and and now I've been doing this for some time and, and um, working with some wonderful clients and every single day is full of new challenges, but I, uh, I have this amazing opportunity to 
kind of be present for that for for my clients and to create space where they themselves can grow as they're building their companies and it's honestly a privilege for me thanks for really being very detailed and how you actually got there personally and realized that okay this is the skill set that i think that would most help founders or, or influence companies it's really fascinating walk me a little bit through uh coaching how is coaching different to advising mentoring, you know, and why should founders consider a coach? I think the, the, the classic answer for that question that most people will point to is that the, when you're consulting and advising and mentoring, um, you're looking toward that person to be an expert in, you know, the specific matter and that they're handing those answers uh, to the questions, uh, to the founder who has those questions. Whereas with coaching, the, the core assumption is that the coach themselves don't have the answers they're not necessarily the expert in that situation it is actually a partnership where a partnership of peers and and the reason this distinction matters is because it 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 um it comes down to who has power here uh and 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 from where is that founder sourcing that power right if you're if you're talking to an advisor and a mentor you're fundamentally looking to them and and in many ways saying i don't know please tell me Give me the answers. Um, I, I, I'm almost looking for permission from you to um, tell me what I need to do. Um, whereas with coaching, there's this assumption that this founder has all the resources that they have to figure out what they need to do. Um, and my job as a coach um, is to help draw that out of them. And so, you know, coaching is fundamentally about developing the person. It's about um, helping them understand uh, who they are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, their blind spots, um, uh, where are they, you know, really adding the most value to their current situations, and also where are they getting in their own way? Where are they getting in the way of others? Um, and by better understanding the behaviors and the motivations behind all of that, fundamentally, the client gets to see themselves more clearly, and therefore, they have more choice. Right? It goes back to the stuckness thing I was talking about. When someone's feeling stuck, typically it's because they find that they're, um, they don't have a choice. They, don't, they, they, they think that whatever choices are in front of them, they're all bad, um, or you know, they don't have the ability to have agency um, for, for some reason. And if you dig deeper, it's probably because they're making some judgment or they're acting out of fear in some way. You know, they're judging their situation as you know, as good or bad, they're judging themselves in their situation. And, you know, you know, they're having a hard time making a decision because they're afraid of what it might mean about them, right? There, there's some internal narrative going on for them. My job is to help them see what's going on, help them understand, like, here's what's driving your behavior. Um, let's, let's unpack that a bit. And if we can understand that and appreciate it and accept it, then it's like, okay, cool. Now we can start to strategize on what you ought to do next. My job isn't to tell them, here's what you should do. It's just to say, you have options. Let's figure out what those look like. Um, and then uh, from there, you can choose. And this matters because one, whatever the client decides to do from that point on, they're going to have way more buy-in. They're going to have way more energy going into that because they, uh, they decided for themselves. Um, and they're developing themselves. They're growing their capacity, 
right? They're, they're actually able to um, add to their skill uh, over time. What are some examples where founders might be at an impasse or don't know what the right strategy is? This is going to maybe sound like a mundane one, but perhaps one that uh, is something that uh, listeners can relate to. So, you know, I have a client, you know, of course, I, I won't name details, but um, I have a client who is uh, running a really interesting business. They just closed the Series A. Um, it's growing. They're trying to grow really fast this year. And um, something that was coming up a lot or has been coming up a lot is there was a, there was a trigger that was popping up. Um, this was a CEO who, whenever he witnessed a member of his team, um, seem to kind of take credit for certain work or, or um, try to get, um, you know, uh, maybe like brag about some, something they had shipped or done. Um, this was something that really upset my client. Whenever they saw this, they would get really angry, really frustrated. Um, you, you could see it. Like it, this would come up in our sessions and he would talk about how pissed off he was when he saw someone trying to take credit for something that didn't really matter in, in my client's mind. And I could tell that this was getting his way because what was happening was that anger, which was coming from judgment, it was coming from this person seeing another human being and saying, this person's selfish, this person's just looking out for themselves, like creating some narrative about them, which then triggered anger and frustration in them, which then actually started to create distance between the CEO and his teammate. And you can imagine that this is a, this is a very easy situation for them to spiral into a way of relating where there's more distance, there's more anger, there's more frustration because now we start to just confirm our biases and confirm these narratives over time. And so part of what we've been working on is understanding, well, where's that frustration coming from? Like, where did you learn to get angry when someone was behaving in this way? Let's get curious about that. Uh, let's get curious about what is so anger inducing for you and let's also maybe get curious about what might be going on for that other person. I might ask them, hey, wh why, do you, why do you think they're seeking credit in this particular situation? And they'll respond I'm like, well, it's because they're selfish. It's because they're looking out for themselves. And in that role, I could just say, okay, cool, it makes sense. What I could also do as a coach is to challenge that for a moment and say, but what if it's something else? Like, what can you think of as a possibility is it possible that there's something else going on here? Is it possible that they're feeling underappreciated in their work? Uh, is it possible that they're not feeling connected to the people around them, right? So on and so forth. And my job isn't to say, oh, I think it's this. My job is to just open the door for them, just like a little crack, a little light comes in. I'm like, oh, maybe this isn't the one thing, the one narrative that I've been so stuck on. Maybe it's something else. And so when we are inviting curiosity there, they're like, okay, Maybe it's one narrative, maybe it's another. But what I'm now doing is I'm consciously choosing to pursue a different interpretation of my situation to see if that will improve our relationship. Right now they have choice. They don't have to necessarily convince themselves that their old narrative was completely wrong, but they're, they're at least acknowledging that there's different possibilities in this given scenario. And... Um, now they have this invitation to try. Now they have this invitation to experiment and see what happens from there. And, and that, that is an example that I actually see a lot now um, as, as uh, more of my clients have these kind of companies and teams that are growing and growing, more and more people are coming and, and they're, they're bringing their own 
motivations and, and behaviors. And you see, you see these founders get triggered all the time because they're like, why are you messing with my baby? Like, this is my, this is my, my company. And they're bringing all this human stuff. You know, it's like that stuff doesn't scale. If you're, if you're constantly zeroing in on that one person on your team who is causing you all these problems, um, that's now become an energy suck. Now you're just stuck on that and uh, you're taking your eye off the ball for more important things. So in that coaching conversation, there was a little bit of this energy release for him where he's like, okay, I'm letting go of the anger for a second because now I can invite myself to have other interpretations of that person. I can maybe like forgive myself for some of the interpretations that I'm bringing to this uh, because now I'm starting to understand where that comes from and I can kind of move forward. And now I have more space. I have more capacity to think about the strategy. I have more capacity to think about the critical decisions that I have to make. By the way, the same client has a team of probably over 20 or 30 people, but he's still running like day-to-day financial operations and running payroll and the CEO. And, and the reason he's doing this is because he's sitting in judgment of many people on his team and not being able to trust him because this is holding him back. So that's a good example where this, this behavior is counterproductive because he's coming to that situation in fear and judgment and in anger. And my job is to help him see how that's affecting the system and how might he start to change that. What sticks out is this relationship, I know we talked about it before, between curiosity and judgment. How do you think about effective leadership balancing curiosity and judgment? I think the, the first thing I'll say is that we're human beings, therefore judgment is inevitable, right? Like our brains are wired to, to judge because there's a survival mechanism, that's a survival mechanism, right? Like we have to understand if something's a threat, if something's going to benefit us and so on. So we're never going to get rid of a judgment. Um, I think that the, the point there is to, to see when it's happening and then to decide if it's serving me or not, right? So that's where it becomes more of a conscious choice. When it comes to effective leadership, um, it is a tricky thing. I think it depends on the the stage of the business. Um, If I were to take a big step back and and even just define what uh, leadership means to me, I think it kind of comes down to three main components. I think the first is to have a clear idea or vision of where you're trying to go, right? We're at point A right now. What is point B? Paint that picture. Be very clear about that. I think the second component is to uh, have a plan for how to get there, right? That's strategy. That's tactics. That's resources. You know, your job as a leader is to make sure that you're marshalling all of those resources effectively so that you have a machine to get from point A to point B. And that's like strategy, that's OKRs, that's, you know, decisions that we're making with the, with the product and which market we're choosing and, you know, so on and so forth. So lots of decisions that go into that. And of course, having the right people around you. And the third component is this, I think this trickier one, which is imp- like creating a path for your team to get there. So that's, now you're starting to talk about accountability and ownership. You can't have accountability without ownership, right? How can we course correct by giving feedback, but feedback that's actually effective, not feedback that makes people defensive. How can we inspire and motivate? How can we continually link people's work back to the purpose and and, and the mission? How can we help them understand where they fit into all this and how their work is really advancing this group of people you know, towards that point B? Have I made it clear what success looks like? 
have I made it clear that you really do own this and I'm not going to go snatch it out of your hands at the you know, smallest hint of uh, displeasure? And I think that going back to that question of judgment versus curiosity, it applies to all of those three elements. But I think the one that where it shows up the most is on that third component of a leader empowering their team to get the job done. I think this is something that becomes uh, especially common for early stage companies, like right when, you know, oh, to you know, answer your question from earlier, which is like, when, when does it make sense? Or when do founders typically start to hire a coach? It's like when they've gotten to a point where there's a whole new set of challenges that they haven't faced before, and um, they know they need to level up. And one of the most common ones is, you know, a seed stage company, they've raised an A, and all of a sudden, they're hiring a bunch of people, they're trying to you know, get to product market fit or scale the product market fit, and they have to let go. They have to like acknowledge that the company that this was at five or 10 people is not the same at 25 or, or 45 people. And so that's where so much of the judgment comes in because now you've got uh, individuals in the team who are operating in a way that you wouldn't operate and may have personalities that you're not used to and ways of communicating that you're not used to. And you know, early stage companies are defined by having tight vision and having these decisions made by the founder. There's a lot of control involved. And when the founder has to like change the way they're controlling or let go of some of that control, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of judgment. And that's where you start to run into trouble when you're, you're building these companies and, and building these, these cultures, right? I think there's, there's, there's so many toxic cultures out there. And I think it's because a lot of the leaders are not very thoughtful or mindful in the way that they're approaching the evolution of their companies. So if I were to summarize it, I think toxic cultures come from leaders who are stuck in judgment and are not aware of it and are not willing to let go of it um, and, and approach with curiosity. Um, they, they insist that things have to be in a certain way. They, um, and if they're not, then you know, somehow there's, there's a, they're perceiving some threat to themselves. Um, so hopefully that helps kind of provide some perspective on how I view it. I'm glad you brought up culture. As a founder, as you scale, how do you think about making sure that that initial culture remains intact as you hire more and more people, but also be open and curious? Curiosity shouldn't be conflated with, hey, whatever goes, like complete lack of you know, principles or decisions or, or values, right? It is important to establish what that company really does value and what is acceptable, what's not, what, what we expect of everybody. And I think the leader's job is to communicate those things very clearly. Where a lot of leaders get into trouble is when those expectations are not stated. And I, you know, it kind of reminds me of this, this quote I heard a while back. I can't remember who said it, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's like expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. And you know, we can make it easier on ourselves if we make expectations really, really clear and, and understanding why we have those expectations in the first place. And so long as everyone on the team understands what is expected of them, then we've done a lot of our job. It's then up to those teammates to decide if they want to be a part of that. And so I think the curiosity component is like, once we've established what we do want and we're moving in that direction, and then you're noticing that people in the company are not really following that same tune that's where the judgment and curiosity might come in, right? Because the judging person might say, oh, these people are lazy. 
Um, they're not smart enough. They're not capable enough. They're not some enough, right? They're not enough in some way. Um, and that's where you can easily get stuck. Curiosity or taking a curious approach would, at, would, would look like, huh, what's getting in the way of them not meeting this expectation? And then it might start to go down the list. Like, well, have I not made it clear? Um, you know, have I not gotten their buy-in? Um, is there something environmental that's getting in the way? Is there some hidden force in, 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 in the current environment that's interfering? Like, let's really understand before we jump to some conclusion like, oh, this individual is not enough. That's helpful. Thank you. What's, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? You know, on the, on the personal side, one of my favorite authors is uh, Haruki Murakami. And I can't name a specific book of his that's my favorite, but I, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Haruki Murakami. And the reason I, uh, I, I enjoy him so much is because he, he has this amazing ability to use language to describe the, the, the common and ordinary in really, really visceral terms, um, ways that where they seem almost extraordinary. And, and he does the same thing with his characters as well. He makes these very bland, plain, like almost purposely bland characters, but it adds a lot of richness to them. And while he, when he's creating their stories, it really starts to like illuminate human experience that I find that I can relate to a lot when I'm reading his books. Um, the other book that comes to mind, which is not Murakami, but a particular book I really, really enjoyed in recent years is, um, is this collection of short stories by Ted Chiang, who's a sci-fi uh, writer. Um, and he wrote this book called uh, Story of Your Life and Others. Um, and that's what the movie Arrival was based off of. And what I really love about his writing and those stories is, um, I mean, he does something that, that, that so many of the great sci-fi writers do, which is he, he examines what's possible in the future, right? He, he paints a picture of this extraordinary world, uh, one where, where um, you can never even conceptualize, but he makes it feel real. Um, but he connects it to like the human struggle. He connects it to the, these kind of timeless stories of humanity that make it feel accessible, right? It's like, even if this, this world he's describing is completely unlike ours, somehow you feel it's very real. And so I, I love that collection of, of stories that he, he wrote. And this is just, I'm saying this out loud. I'm thinking I should re reread that. Answer the question around professional um, books I think one of the best books I've read recently is a book called Crucial Conversations. Crucial Conversations is, think of it as a guidebook for having these interactions that have a lot of emotion and disagreement. And, um, you know, the stakes are high in those situations. And it's, it's this wonderful kind of walkthrough of why, like what makes a crucial conversation? What makes a, a human interaction so fraught with emotion? What are the factors that go into it? And when we understand that, what can we, how can we use that to our advantage? How can we under, better understand our own emotions and our own stories that we're bringing to that interaction? How can we practice empathy and curiosity about the other person? How can we frame our own stories in a way that reduces defensiveness and creates more safety for that other person? How can we invite the other person in to um, that conversation so that there's greater connection, greater understanding and, and conflict resolution? You know, I, I read this book last year and it was just such a wonderful distillation of many, many ideas and concepts that, that I'd been familiar with. Um, but it all kind of came together in this one package. And 
I, I find that I recommend this book to so many people when they're finding themselves in these like kind of triggered stress states when they're having these conversations, uh, whether it's at work or even in their personal lives. So Crucial Conversations, huge shout out to them. I think that's it's such a such a wonderful book. That's awesome. I haven't I haven't heard of any of these, so I'm really <laughs> excited to uh, to uh, check them out. And and you're the first one that I've said uh, that I've mentioned these. So uh, I always I always love it when it's uh, n- new books that that people mention. This is great. What's what's one piece of advice that you have for all founders? I think the thing that really comes to mind is learn how to learn how to separate yourself from the company. Uh, I think it's as simple as that. I think there's so much anguish that the founders experience is they uh, they have no distance between themselves and, and the company and the outcomes, and um, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it's that it's that it's that identification with the company that drives so much of of their energy and, and their output, but it's also the source of so much suffering because when when things don't go well or when things seem to not be going well because the two are different it can it can really 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 mess with you and it affects every part of that person and it's a cascading effect right it um, they start to take care of themselves less because they're working harder they're not working out they're not eating right they're not sleeping um, their relationship um, at home is probably being affected which adds more stress they bring that stress into the workplace the workplace now all of a sudden takes on that stress and it kind of creates this downward spiral and so much of this just comes from this core belief that many people have which is if my company doesn't succeed then that will mean i am somehow not enough um, and it's dangerous thinking. And so uh, the advice I would give anybody, whether you're just starting out or whether you're several years in and maybe you're on your third company, is to recognize that you are not your company and, and to keep a healthy distance from it. I think that's excellent advice. I we I actually haven't heard that yet on the show again. So that's this is great. Brian, this has been a, a, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It, it, it was the pleasure was all mine, Mike. Thank you so much for the great conversation and uh, happy to do it again. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Brian on and talking all things coaching. I really appreciate him taking the time. If you're interested in learning more about how coaching can help you perform better as a leader, please schedule an introduction call with Brian at dashingleadership.com. If you want to keep up to date as well on Brian, you can follow him on Twitter at Brian M. Wang. If you're a founder and working on something innovative and want to share anything with me, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. And for all episodes, please visit the ConsumerVC.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and stay safe.